Hey everybody, it's John. Welcome or welcome back to the One Church Podcast. Hey, thank you for taking a second to subscribe to our channel. And when you rate and review this podcast, it really means a lot to me as it helps us engage with even more people. But most importantly, I hope that the word today will engage, equip, empower, and encourage you to reach the world. Enjoy. Have y'all ever been asked to do something that was a little bit crazy? Y'all ever been asked to do something that seemed like it was going to be like way beyond your comfort zone? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, some of y'all never been asked to do a thing in here. Anybody ever been asked to do something outside your comfort zone? You know, I, there's a phrase that I heard where you, you get asked to do something a little bit, you know, out there and you go, yeah, that sounds like that's going to be a stretch. Like if you're, if you're a wife and a mom, you've probably been asked to do some things where you've gone, yeah, that's not going to happen. That sounds like a stretch. Or... If you're from Kentucky or Tennessee, you have heard some stories, uh, like fishing stories or hunting stories, like this, this guy down at our Tennessee location, we have a, um, a service down at a, a campus there, and this guy, he's got like 19 you know, deer heads on a room in his, his house, and he's like, man, I was out hunting, and there was like this 48-point buck that was coming my way, and I'm like, Mm, that sounds like I might be a stretch. But some of y'all, you're like, man, I was out fishing on Lake Barkley, and I was out there, and I mean, all of a sudden that bobber started to move, and you know, I turned around, and I, and I saw the beast of LBL, but I was distracted by what was happening there. The beast of LBL, y'all, come on. There's a movie coming out about that. Pray, we're going to be famous, but any, if y'all are in the movie, please don't tell me, okay? But that, and they're like, that, that bobber started moving, and all of a sudden, I started to reel in, and I looked down in the water, and there was a 38-pound, you know, bass that hooked onto my, and I'm like, y'all, it was a bluegill, and you forgot to put bait on your hook. That sounds like a stretch. Any of y'all ever heard a fishing story sound like a stretch? Listen, sometimes God asks us to do things that sound like a stretch. He gives us some instruction that if we didn't know better, we would think God was crazy. Like when you hear some of the things that Jesus says to people in scripture, you go, not only is that maybe borderline stupid, that might be a little bit rude <laughs> because Jesus looks at a man who's never been able to walk since the day he was born and he goes, hey, get up. That's mean <laughs> unless you're Jesus and you have the power to heal him. Jesus gets into the, the hearing of a blind man and he goes, look at me. That's mean, unless you have the power to do something about it. And a lot of times Jesus looks at people and we can read about different times through scripture and he asks them to do things that seem like they're a stretch. It's outside of our ability and it sounds ridiculous and crazy. But how many of you know when God asks something crazy, something spectacular always follows? Every single time. Now, sometimes God asks us to do things that seem like a stretch. God, that's going to stretch me a little bit. God, that seems a little bit far-fetched. What we're going to find today is we take a look at one individual who encounters Jesus, that when God shows up, he shows out. And when he speaks, he expects us to obey. So if you found your place in Mark chapter 3, we're just going to start with one verse. The Bible says in chapter 3, verse 1, again, somebody say again. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to be here today and thank you for your word. God, I pray for the next few moments as we journey through this passage, these five verses, you'd give us eyes to see. God, would you give us ears to hear? God, I pray that you would anoint my lips with a fresh coal from the fire of your throne. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work and move as we worship now through the listening to preaching. God, we ask that you show up and show out and that you get all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, 
Chapter 3, verse 1, there's an interesting word that it starts with. You see it right here. What's the first word of the verse? Now, Jesus has been here before. He's taught here before. He's done things here before. Where's here? Well, specifically Capernaum, but there's three cities that kind of surround the Sea of Galilee right here. There's Chorazin, there's Bethsaida, and then there's Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is kind of Jesus' home base. It's kind of where he set up camp, if you will, and he's doing a lot of things. It's been suggested that Jesus lived there, maybe in Peter's house. He's there frequently. He teaches there frequently. He does miracles there frequently. And what's interesting about the people of Capernaum, and you can read about some of these things in the previous chapter of Mark, is that they become so familiar with Jesus that they stop honoring him. They become so familiar with the miracles of God that they, they stop recognizing that it's Jesus. And, and Jesus would write later, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country. He goes, I'm here at home where people ought to know and love and respect me. And right here, I'm trying to work miracles, but it just seems like my home people are rejecting me. And Jesus makes a great indictment against the people that he's coming to again. He says right here, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades or hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Jesus is saying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that you read about in the, in the Old Testament that were filled with great wickedness and, and just idolatry and, and sodomy, is that's where it gets its name. Jesus goes, those places that were just abominable in my eyes, if I would have done the things that I've done for you in those cities, filled with abomination, they would have repented. That's just how big of a ministry Jesus had in Capernaum. And he goes, listen, you've heard me, you've seen me, you've encountered me, and you've rejected me. It's not going to bode well for you in the day of eternity. So back in chapter three, verse one, we remember that again, he enters the synagogue. So he's preached here before. He's performed miracles here before. He has visited here before, and yet he comes again. They've rejected him before. They have mocked him before. They have kicked him out and plotted to kill him before. And yet Jesus comes back to Capernaum again. Listen, I don't know about you, but I know about me. I'm so thankful that I serve a God of again. I'm thankful I serve a God of second and third and one millionth chances. I'm thankful that though I have rejected him, though I have sinned, though I have messed up, though I have turned my back, though I have put my hand in the face of God and said, no, still Jesus comes back again and again and again and again. I'm thankful that as a child of God, no matter how far I run at times, Jesus comes again. He shows up again. Now, this story that we're reading here is recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when you read Matthew's account, Matthew was a tax collector and he was a, a Levite. So he records an interesting detail. He, he would have been a man super familiar with the temple. And when Matthew talks about this story, he says, again, he entered into their synagogue. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. It says he enters into their synagogue. Now, he uses a personal pronoun that's so important because I want to know who's there. 
Who, who owns the synagogue? Who belongs to the synagogue? And if you journey backwards the last chapter and the chapter before, you find out that Jesus and his disciples have just come from uh, eating because they were hungry, but they didn't wash their hands in the ceremonial way that the Pharisees said that you had to. And the Pharisees, the church leaders, had made a lot of rules that were on top of the word of God, and they were calling people sinners and idolaters and abom. They, they said Jesus had a demon because he didn't do the things in the order that they said they needed to be done in. You know what's interesting about that? Even though he had just come from the field where they were plotting to kill him, where they were mocking him, where they were berating him, he still goes into their synagogue. You know what that shows me about Jesus and what that ought to show us about us? Number one, Jesus didn't let imperfect people keep him from perfect fellowship with God. Jesus did not let the hypocrisy of even the church leaders keep him from fellowshipping with the local church. And in the United States of America, what we like to do is church hop. Whenever we don't like something here, we go over here. And when we don't like it there, we go over here. And listen, there is only one reason why God ever calls us to leave a local church. The reason for that is this. If behind the pulpit we are preaching heresy, until God tells you to move, you'd better not go. Because you'll do damage to yourself and to wherever you go. Just ask Jonah. The whole ship was in the middle of a storm because one man was where he wasn't supposed to be. Because of that, you know, we, we have a policy here. And we don't do this to be mean. We just do it to be right. If someone comes to worship with us and they come from another church, I will call their pastor. And I'll say, hey, you know, the Smith family was worshiping with us today. And I just wanted you to know. And you know what happens? Sometimes that pastor goes, praise God, that church is actually closer to their house, and, and I'm so glad that they're getting plugged in. You know, they're a great family, and they've left here, you know, with, with our blessing. But sometimes they go, yeah, you're going to want to be careful because they are problem causers. Listen, we are friends with just about every pastor in the greater Cadiz and Hoptown area. If you get mad at me and you go over there, guess what? They're going to call me too. And I'll be able to say, you better watch out for Shirley. She is a mess. Shirley's in here, and I love Shirley. She's awesome. Jesus did not let imperfect people keep him from being where he was supposed to be. And two, these people had just tried to kill him. These people are mocking him. These people are making his life difficult, and he still goes into their house. How amazing that even though we make life difficult for God, he still comes to our house again and again. Again, he entered into the synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. Now, that's, that, that's interesting right here, this word, this word withered. Right here, there's a man with a withered hand, and in the book of Luke, chapter 6, Luke was a doctor, and so he liked to record specific details that none of the other guys did or that they missed. Luke says in Luke, chapter 6, that his right hand was withered. Now that's important, that's symbolic, because back in this Old Testament time, your right hand symbolized authority. Your right hand symbolized blessing. Your right hand symbolized strength. So authority, think about this. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When you seat somebody at your right hand, you are communicating a message to all who see, this person shares my authority. So your right hand, the hand of authority, the hand of blessing. Think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in their 
Old Testament culture, when they would bless their oldest son, they would place their right hand on their head and pronounce the blessing. Your right hand is the hand of blessing. It's the hand of strength. It's the hand with which you provide for your family. It's the hand with which you work so that you can eat. And back in this time, who you are has a lot to do with what you're able to accomplish. And so this man, one might say, had no authority. This man, one might say, had no blessing. This man, you might say that this man had little strength. He's a man with a lot of issues. He's a man with a lot of problems. And he's right there in the place where Jesus shows up. Now, Jesus has been to Capernaum many times before. And I don't know where this man came from. I know he's from Capernaum. He's worshiping there in the home synagogue. So he's he's a Jewish man. He's a good Jew. He's a law-abiding, religious Jew. So I don't know if maybe he had seen Jesus work miracles before. And maybe he thought, yeah, I know Jesus, he healed the lame man. And I know he did that for the blind man. But, th- but with my hand, there's just no way he can help my situation. I-, I know that he did that for them. But I don't know, maybe he thought, it, yeah, I just my problem is a little bit too big for God to, to handle. Isn't it funny how we, we pray with people and we're like, God is going to help you. The best is yet to come. And it's real easy to pray for others. But when we go through a problem, we go, oh, but there's no way God could help me. And so what do we do? We lay out a church because we're like, I know that, that we were there to gather around them, but I don't, I just, nobody can help me. And, and we prayed for them. But when we go through a mess, we're like, yeah, but God, it's just, God's not, he can, I just, I'm going to worry about it rather than pray about it. And when we worry, we slap God in the face because worry worships a problem where prayer elevates the promise above the problem. I don't know if maybe he had seen Jesus work and he's like, I just don't know, and so he had missed his miracle. I don't know if maybe he wasn't there when Jesus was there. And maybe he had heard rumor of Jesus like the blind man, Bartimaeus. And maybe he thought, if I were to meet Jesus, he could heal me. And someone said, ah, I did he healed the other person. He helped them, but, but there's no way that he's going to be able to help you specifically. I, I don't know what kept him from being healed before this, but here's what I know. He's in the right place at the right time around the right person because Jesus has come again. And I don't know who you are, and I don't know what problem you're facing or what situation you walked into this room with today, but I'm happy to announce to the room that today, no matter what you've got buried, no matter what handicap you face, no matter what insecurity you have down deep in your heart today. Jesus is coming again. He wants to move in this place again. He was here at 9 a.m. He's back at 11 and he wants to speak again. I'm glad I serve a God of again. He comes again to find the man there with the withered hand. You know what's interesting about this man with the withered hand? Is that word withered? I've read that word dozens of times. I've read this story all the time since I was a little kid. And I always just assumed that the word withered was an adjective. I assumed that just like you're wearing a pink shirt or you're wearing a white shirt or you're sitting in a black chair, that withered was an adjective that described hand. But this week, I pulled out my concordance and I was actually looking up something different and this word caught my eye because I realized that this word withered is not an adjective in the Greek. It's actually a verb. 
What's interesting about the tense of this verb, withered, is that it means to make dry, to make dry up, or to wither. In other words, Scripture seems to imply that the withering of this man's hand had nothing to do with the way he was born, but rather an outside force created an inside problem. Now, I know that there are certain trials that I'm going to encounter because of my sin. I know that there are situations I'll find myself in because I messed up. I know that there are consequences I may deal with because I made a mistake. But how many of you know that there are some things that we deal with, not because we chose them, but because an outside force created an inside problem? Maybe you're like me and you come from a family that was not perfect. I didn't choose my family. I didn't choose where I would be born. I didn't choose my siblings. The Lord knows I definitely didn't choose them. That was an outside force that I had nothing to do with. But because my family had imperfections and my family had secrets and my family had issues and, and drama and baggage, that outside force created within me some inside problems that I deal with today. And listen, I, I didn't do that. I didn't create that. That wasn't my problem. But now I'm dealing with things on the inside because of something that happened to me on the outside. Have you ever been there? Have you ever found yourself dealing with an emotional scar or a secret sin? Or an insecurity, not because you chose it, and maybe not even because you messed up, but because something happened to you. There was a collision with another person or with a situation along the way, and you left the scene damaged and feeling totaled because an outside force created an inside problem. And here stands a man in the presence of Jesus who was not born with this problem, who did not choose this problem. And most likely this issue did not come because he made a mistake. Rather, something happened along the way that left him damaged, bruised, and broken, standing there with no authority, with no blessing, with no power and no strength. This man cannot embrace his wife fully, but he wants to. This man cannot feed his mouth on his own, but he wants to. This man cannot provide for himself or his family, but he wants to. He he wants to do what God's called him to do, but he's got a problem. An outside force created an inside problem. Now his right hand is withered and he doesn't know what to do. It sounds to me like a job that is just right for Jesus. Watch the next verse. Watch what verse number two said. And they watch Jesus. Who's they? That's the critics. That's the religious people. That's the Pharisees. I want you to read a word with me. They watched Jesus to see whether he... That's interesting. They did not watch Jesus to see whether he could heal him. They'd already seen him heal a bunch of people. They had already seen him perform a bunch of miracles. They were not watching to see whether Jesus could. They were watching to see what he would do. I want you to know something and I want you to be encouraged by something today. When you get in the right place and around the right people, when you get in the presence of God, there are always going to be critics. 
there are always going to be naysayers. There are always going to be negative people. And when they show up, they begin to question. And here's the funny thing about what they question. They don't question what God can do because it's no secret what what, what God can do. You can read this history book and I can flip back into the book of Genesis how that God can create something from nothing. I know what he can do. It's what will he do. I know that in the book of Exodus, God can part the water so that I could walk through on dry ground. I know what God can do. It's just what he will do. I can flip over into the book of of 1 Samuel and I can see how God can anoint someone who nobody knows and who's keeping sheep in the the backside of the desert. And, and, And he can pick and choose whoever he wants. I know what he can do. It's just what he would. I can flip over to the book of Ruth and find out that God can provide even in the middle of my mess. I know what he can do. It's just what he would do. Listen, you open this book and you're going to read all sorts of things what God can do. And Satan knows exactly what God can do. And so when he begins to question, what he's questioning is not what God can do. What he's questioning is what will God do? I know what he's capable of, but would he do that for you? I know that God can perform miracles, but will he help you? I know that God can provide, but will he help your situation? Satan begins to question. And this man is in the right place at the right time. And here's the exciting news. When you are in God's will, he will. And the only way to know God's will is inside his will. And when I walk in God's ways, he leads me in his will. Look up here. Make sure you're in the right place, around the right people, and in the presence of God. And it's not a matter of what God can do. It is no secret what God can do. The question is, what is God's will? They watched him to see if he would heal him. And in verse number three, Jesus responds. He says this. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now, keep in mind, they're in the synagogue. So the women and children are all up in the balcony area in a separate section. The Pharisees have all gathered in their crowd, the Sadducees and the scribes. The men are all seated there. It's the the Sabbath day, so it's time to worship. All of the good Jewish people are there in their place to read from the Torah and to recite the Psalms. They're all in the right place, so it seems. And Jesus calls out the man with the withered hand and he says, Hey, While everyone is looking, I want you to completely expose yourself. I want you to come up here. There is nothing more nerve-wracking for some of you than if I were to point you out right now and ask you to come here. If I were to hand you a microphone and say, I want you to speak, I want you to talk, some of you would go, that's my greatest fear. I I cannot speak in public. Public speaking is like one of the number one phobias in the United States of America. This man not only is gonna have to stand in public, he's gonna have to stand in public being the guy that has the disability, the obvious disability. Now, he's wearing a robe. Chances are he's got the sleeve of that robe covering up his withered hand where the the muscles have atrophied and he can no longer open his fingers. Chances are this is something he tries to protect the public from seeing. Chances are this is something he doesn't want anyone to view. And Jesus calls him out and he says, hey, come here. And if we were a disciple, we would go, Jesus, don't, don't make him come here. You've made house calls before. (laughs) Just go visit him at his house after this is over. Jesus, I mean, he's embarrassed. 
I mean, when you've got an insecurity, you're embarrassed of it most of the time. You don't, don't make him come up here. Don't make him expose that in front of everyone. Jesus, and, and, and the compassionate ones in the room would say, Jesus, that's so cruel. That's so cruel. And Jesus would turn to us and he would say, calling him out is not cruel. Calling him out is the greatest act of compassion that I could ever have on his life. Now, I want to preface the principle of this scripture with this. You cannot have Christ without compassion. You cannot show Christ without showing compassion. You cannot speak from Christ without speaking also with compassion. And this is a principle that we talk a lot about here, but it's worth repeating because some of us miss the mark. Listen, the truth of God is important, but the God who is truth is also the God who is love. And you cannot communicate truth without doing it in love. And you cannot truly love people lest you tell them the truth. Think about this. One of the issues in, in our political climate these days that's a hot topic, and it has been for years, but it's, it rises to the surface every few months, the idea of abortion. A lot of people are talking about it. A lot of people are posting about it. I, I have as well. Is abortion sin? Yes. The Bible is abundantly clear that life begins at conception. And I'm glad for the states that are passing the heartbeat bill. That's wonderful. But life begins even before the heartbeat. Life begins at conception. God says in his word, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's not a fetus. That's a baby. That's not just DNA. That's a soul. And you, you can try and argue with me all you want to. You're not arguing with me. You're arguing with what the creator, God, king of the universe has to say. I don't care what the government says. I just care what God says. Is it wrong? Yes, it's wrong. But you cannot point your finger in the face of people and go, if you've had an abortion, you're a filthy murderer. And you should come to my church. That does not match up. I mean, imagine if I looked at you and I said, you told a lie one time. You're a wicked liar. And you should come to my church sometime. <laughs> We'd have a good time. You're a glutton and you eat too many donuts. And you should come to my, I just pointed out Amanda, one good time. She says she can eat more than me, but like guilty. I, I don't know. She might win. Who knows? We'll find out one day. You are mad, you're jacked up and messed up and you're going to hell. And you should come to my church. It doesn't work that way. Jesus doesn't just point people out. That's what Satan does. That's what religion does. He doesn't do that. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's standing before God in the presence of God. He's pointing his finger at you and he's going, God, did you see what he did? Did you hear what she said? Do you know what they thought? God, they're awful. He's accusing the brethren and we are never more like Satan than when we point our finger in people's faces and start accusing them of all their wrongdoings. Did they do it? Yes, they did. But listen, Jesus doesn't just point people out. Jesus calls them out. He goes, hey, you with the problem, come here and let me love you and help you not have this problem anymore. The answer is not for us to point our finger and go, sinner. The answer is for us to point our fingers at people 
people and go, hey, Savior, he's the one, he's the solution. He is what we contrast your life against. Listen, religion and Satan go, problem, 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 problem. Jesus goes, peace, 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 peace. Are you getting this this morning? We wanna be like Jesus. It's the difference between look at you and come to me. Listen, God called and he wants his job back. It's his job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to start convicting people of their sin, not yours. Do we call sin, sin? Yes, we do. But we're not just calling it that. We're calling people to Jesus and we let Jesus do the work on the inside. And we let Jesus do the work on the outside. I grew up in an environment that just pointed people out. That's all we did. And listen, I, I grew up in the type of church that if a girl walked in and she wasn't dressed to the standard, they would either give her an ugly blanket and tell her to walk around wrapped around herself, or they would take her to the clothes closet and they would give her a pair of culottes. I don't know if you know what those are, but they're like gauchos or shorts, only bigger and ugly. And they were all made out of curtains that came out of your grandma's nursing home patterns. That's what they were made out of. And they would walk that girl over to the closet and they would go, you're not dressed to our standard. Here, let me give you some culottes to put on. You know where all of those, not just some, do you know where all of those girls went? Home. They did not stay for church. Why? Because we pointed them out. We didn't call them to Jesus. We were the type of religious system that said, you got a problem. You're going to smoke, you're going to chew, then you're not going to come with the people here. Well, no, no, no. We don't do that. Because your sin, your secret sin, is just as wrong. We're not here to point people out. We're here to call them to Jesus. It's not a, look at you. It's a, Jesus says, come to me. Watch what happens in verse number four. Jesus said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. You see, Jesus has a habit of answering people's questions with questions and letting them arrive at the answer. So they go, hey, Jesus, it's the rule that you can't heal people on the Sabbath day because that's work. And Jesus goes, okay, is it okay to kill or to help? Is it okay to do good or to do harm? And if they answered the question, they would implicate and incriminate themselves in their religiosity. And so they shut up. Jesus is communicating a principle here that is so very important that you and I understand. Here's what it is. There is never a wrong time to do what is right. The rule said, don't help him. Because it's the church day. And Jesus goes, there is never a wrong day to do what is right. There's never a wrong time to do what's right. And can I tell you this this morning? The greatest tool of temptation in Satan's tool shed is not disobedience in its purest form. Satan doesn't come to you and go, hey, I know God told you to go to church, but you need to go to the bar instead. He doesn't do that because that's easy to spot. We go, nah, I'm supposed to be in church. Uh, God tells you, hey, I, I want you to tell people about Jesus. Satan doesn't come and go, you don't need to do that. You, you need to tell people that you're not a Christian. Satan doesn't do that because that's easy to spot. Even an immature believer, even a baby Christian can go, yeah, that's way opposite of what God said. Satan's greatest tool is not just disobedience. Here's what it is. Delay. Delay. 
Satan begins to whisper in our ear and he goes, hey, Aaron, I know God called you to do that. And he did. You heard from God. But dude, you're too young. Why don't you just wait a few years until people respect you more and then you can serve God. And we go, that makes sense. God begins to speak and he says, hey, I'm, I'm calling you. And Satan goes, Bronson, dude, I know God called you. I mean, we both agree. God spoke that to you. And we, we would go, yeah. And he would go, but dude, I mean, you work, you've got a busy schedule. You work a lot of crazy hours. You've you got a family and a wife. Man, what, what, if you just, what if you just waited till tomorrow? I know God said do that today, but what if you wait till tomorrow? I mean, God wants us to rest. That's why I made the Sabbath day. I mean, I know God said do it now, but don't you think God would care if you just waited till tomorrow? And there's always an excuse. Too busy, too tired, not enough money, not enough time. What if they don't like me? What if I just need to wait? And the way that Satan is destroying churches and killing Christians is not by telling them to just disobey. What he's telling them to do is to delay. And can you finish this sentence with me? Delayed obedience is still 100% of the time. And they said, hey, Jesus, you can heal him. Just wait. And Jesus goes, no, there is never a wrong time to do what's right. And then Jesus says something amazing. Verse number five, and this is our final verse today. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. Now, I'm going to finish that verse in just a second, but could we consider something for just a moment? This is the second set of instruction that Jesus has given to this man. Remember, Jesus called him out and he said, come here. And the man did. And nothing happened. What if God calls me to do something and the end result is not what I predicted? What if God speaks and he gives me some instruction and what happens is not what I wanted? What happens when I make a move and it doesn't seem like I get the miracle? What do I do? Well, here's what the enemy begins to say. Here's what our flesh begins to whisper. Jesus says, hey, stretch out your hand. It's impossible for you to do, but I'm asking you to do it. In that moment, we begin to hear the whisperings of, I know that you're telling me to stretch out my hand, but you told me to come here and I came here and nothing happened. So now you're asking me to do something else. And, and if I do that, who's to say that something's going to happen now? Because I obeyed you the first time and nothing happened now. What? What happens when we move without a miracle? Here's some perspective for you this morning. God likes to give us instruction to test our obedience. I, I love it when people come to me and they say, hey, pastor, um, God told me this. God said this to me and, and, and then I did it. And, and now things aren't working out. And I just, I don't know what to do. And, and now I'm upset and I'm gonna leave the church. Or I'm done with Christianity because God said this and it didn't match up with my experience, my expectation. And now I don't know what to do. That's where I uh, typically, and some of you've heard me say this, I'll go, I'll put them on pause and I'll go, hey, wait a second. God spoke to you? And they go, yeah. The King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Master and Creator of the universe spoke to you. And they go, yes, but he didn't. And I go, no, 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 no. God talked to you and you're complaining? The King of Kings spoke to you, regular old you, and you're upset? 
that your experience didn't match your expectation, it sounds to me like you were expecting the wrong thing. Sometimes God will instruct us to move. Sometimes God will ask us to make a move. And we go, "Mm, that sounds like a stretch. That sounds a little out of my comfort zone. But you said, come here. So I'm here at church today. And now God may ask you to, to give. God may ask you to serve. God may ask you to get connected. In fact, God's asking you to do all three of those things if you're not. God gives you some instruction for how to lead your family. God gives you some, uh, a word on what you need to do in your personal life or a move you need to make uh, at work or, or in your family. And, and we go, but God, I did this and nothing happened. I don't know if I can trust you with that. And God goes, I'm testing your obedience. Listen, because so many of us go to God for the product and not for the person. So many of us go to God in prayer like brats on Christmas writing out a 37-point Christmas list of all the things we want. Here's how we pray. Dear God, thank you for this day. And that's good because we heard everybody else say that, and so that's our one praise for the day. And we don't even actually thank him for the day. Those are just words that we say. God, thank you for this day. Now let me give you the 57 things that I need. God, I need safety on the road. I need health today. I need you to take the sickness away. I need you to give me a good day at work. I need for you to help my husband because he needs Jesus. I need for you to, Lord, these kids, if you don't do something, God, God, we need a financial miracle. God, I'm, I'm praying for brother and sister so-and-so because they said they got a problem Uh, My grandma's got the sniffles. God, would you help her? God, would you please and do this? And then I need this. And God, if you, and God, and and by the time we finished, we were like, God, this, this, gimme, 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 gimme. And God goes, "Mm, no. Well, I thought we have not because we ask not. (laughs) The rest of that scripture says, sometimes you ask for things and you don't get it because you ask amiss, that you can consume it upon your own lust. God goes, sometimes you ask for the wrong things and you ask for the wrong things or the right things for the wrong reason. You know why we go to God in prayer? Not to get the product, but to encounter the person. I just saw the new movie, Aladdin, and I'm a huge Disney fan, so I was eating up every moment of it. And just shout out to Will Smith. You did an amazing job being the genie. Will Smith's probably watching the live stream because I'm his favorite preacher, and he just tunes in every week. Listen, uh, he he did a great job, but I I love the Aladdin movie. It was phenomenal. But what's interesting is that genie is the most powerful cosmic being in the story. The guy, the most powerful being in the universe And if you rub the lamp, anything you ask him to do or tell him to do, he has to do it if you say, I wish. You know, some of us think that God's like that. We're like, God, you are king. You are Lord. You are powerful. You're the creator. And God, I sure wish that you would give me this blessing. And God goes, no, my word is not a lamp that you rub. (laughs) It's not one of those things where you go, okay, I'm going to let the wind blow my Bible open to the right page that God wants me to read. And then I'm going to go, This is the magic verse that's going to help my situation. I'm sure glad it's not because this one says everyone who passes by it is horrified and shakes his head. (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 18. I'm, I'm glad that that's not how it works. Some of us go to God like that. We're like, okay, God, here's my wish for the day. And then God doesn't do what we ask him to do. And we go, well, I guess God's not real. I guess God doesn't love me. I guess God is silent. And God's going, no, you just came to me with the wrong intentions. You want to see peace in your life? You want to find purpose like you've never known? Do you want to experience healing for that withered mess that you've been carrying around for years? Here's what you do. This week, go into your prayer closet. 
Maybe you need to literally clean out a closet, even if it's just one that you can barely fit in. It'll inspire you to, to lose some weight. You get in there and close the door and just start your prayer like this. Hey, Dad, Heavenly Father, and then shut up and listen. And let your Father speak to you because some of the most powerful prayers that you will ever pray will be times when you listen for the voice of God instead of you doing all the talking like your teenage daughter. Maybe you need to get alone with God and just say, God, I want to experience your presence. Father, I just want to spend some time with you and I'm not leaving this space until you speak. And some will say, well, pastor, that might take hours might be hours before God says something. And I go, good, exactly. And you will leave that space, that closet, that room, that car, that office, wherever, having experienced the presence of God and it will not have been wasted time because waiting time is never wasted time. We do not go to God for the products. We go to him for the person. Because our obedience is not for the miracle. We don't obey God to get something. We obey God because he's God. We obey God because he's the master. So we don't pursue the product. We pursue the person. Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he was healed. He stretched it out and it was healed. But Jesus asked him something ridiculous. Stretch out your hand. Notice, he doesn't say which hand. He doesn't say, stretch out your withered hand. Stretch out your right hand. No, he just says, stretch out your hand. Now the man is in a moment of decision. Okay, do I stretch out my insecurity? Do I stretch out my problem? Do I expose my issue in front of all these people and in front of God? Or do I put my best foot forward and pretend like I've got it all together? Some of us come to church like that. The, a time of worship is a time of stretching. And we go, mm, I'm just good at that. Pastor Zach said, lift our hands. That sounded like a stretch. I think I'll just stand here or I'll just sit here because this is more comfortable. Because if I were to do that, here's the thing. I know what the spirit of God feels like because there was that one time and I just started crying at church and, oh, I just don't want people to see me like that. I've been going through something this week, and I just don't want people to see me like this. And I don't want to expose my problem in front of all these people that want to love me and help me. That doesn't make any sense. So I'm going to put my best foot forward, and I'm going to, I'm going to pretend like I've got it all together. The man doesn't do that, though. The man stretches his withered hand toward Jesus. You know what's interesting about the tense of this verb, stretch? That Jesus asks, if you study Greek, and I don't recommend it because it's hard and boring and I barely passed it, it's really difficult. But this verb is an aorist tense verb, A-O-R-I-S-T, aorist tense verb, means something that will be done once and for all. An aorist tense verb in the Greek is something kind of like our past tense, only it carries a little bit more weight. It means something that will be done once and for all. It means something that once it's done, it's done. In other words, 
We serve a God of a remission mindset, not a relapse mindset. Listen, if God stepped in and he healed you from cancer, praise God for the healing and stop waking up every day going, I wonder if I'm still here. I wonder if I'm still healed. I wonder if I'm still healed. I wonder if I'm Listen, if God saved you, he remade you. You're in remission from your sin problem. Stop worrying about the relapse. What if I mess up? Am I still saved? Am I still saved? Am I still saved? God, go stop that. You're focusing on the wrong thing. When God says stretch, he says it's settled. And when God says it, that settles it, it's over and it's done. I'm thankful that I serve a God who allows me to think in a remission mindset. I don't have to constantly wonder if God's power was good enough to keep me. I ain't going to relapse, friend. He says, stretch forth your hand. And the thing about a verb that says it's already done means that the miracle happened as he was stretching because his hand is withered. It's impossible for him to stretch. The fact that Jesus is asking him to do this makes no sense, except that God has the power to heal. Stretch out your hand. God, that does sound like a stretch. Yep. But I'm powerful enough to heal you. And in your move, I perform the miracle. And some of you are this close to the miracle that God wants you to have. You're here. You're here this morning. Jesus said, come here, and you're standing here. And now God is saying, hey, your secret sin, your insecurity, your addiction, your baggage, your wound, your scar, stretch it out so I can heal it. You mean expose it in front of all these people? Yeah, it's called a life group. It's called doing life together because two are better than one. Because we are better together. You mean, you mean confess to God openly? I'm not asking you to grab a microphone and tell us all your sins. I'm not doing that. What I'm saying is get real with God and say, God, I've got a pride problem. God, I've got a lust problem. God, I've got a bitterness problem. God, I've got an anger problem. God, I've got... uh, pornography problem. God, I've got a drug problem. God, I've got a gossip problem. God, I've got a worry problem. I don't know what your problem is. Here's what I know. That outside forces create inside problems. And maybe the bitterness that you're fighting today or the lust that you're battling today is a result of something that someone else exposed you to or something that someone else did to you. And I'm sorry that that happened. And I'm sorry that we live in a sinful world. But your withered hand means that you're not experiencing blessing and you're not encountering peace. You feel like you're living a life minus strength and, and, and purpose. And you want to embrace people and you want to serve and you want to provide and, and you want to be a help and you want to do what God has called you to do. That's what you want. But there's something that keeps you from it. And at the end of the day, God says, I'm calling you to stretch that out. Because in order for the muscle to grow, it has to be stretched. God, there's no way I can heal this on my own. And God goes, exactly. And there's a lie running around Christian culture today that says God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not in the Bible. God never gives you a temptation you can't say no to, but God most definitely gives you situations that you cannot handle on your own. Why? Because it stretches us to say, God, by myself, I cannot, but with your power. God, I cannot do this alone, but with you, 
we can. And if we're honest, we'd say, God, I've got an old withered hand. And I can't be fixed. But you can give me faith. He says, stretch out your hand. And he does. And as he stretches, his hand is healed. When you stretch, your move becomes his miracle. And when God says, this is my plan, know this. God says, here's my power in order for you to be able to do it. So when you feel like you're in the middle of a problem that's just too big for you to solve, know that your problem is ultimately for God's purpose. Your pain is for His purpose. Your old withered hand is not purposeless. God wants to give you power. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the greater Cadiz, Kentucky, or Winchester, Tennessee areas, we'd love to have you join us at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about our amazing children's and students' opportunities, visit us at onechurchcadiz.com. That's onechurchcadiz.com.